Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 72. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And this week's double feature, uh, 1927's The Unknown, uh, the Todd Browning film, and The Fun House, 1981, Toby Hooper. Malcolm, you brought this pair of scary movies to the podcast mm. on this glorious, chilly October week, the scariest week of the month. Two weeks before Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I get the most scared, at least personally. Uh, why Why did you bring these two films together? Uh, you know, as a young boy, as a young boy, I loved going to the fair, the county fair. And, uh, you know, as I've grown up, you know, I've had to take that out of my life. You know, I've been too busy. And I, I wanted to go, and I've never been to the circus before. You know, it's kind of more of a concept than an actual thing for me. So, I love entertainment. I love travelers. <laughs> I love people who travel around just trying to entertain people. And what do we have unknown? We get a look at the behind the scenes of how's the circus happening? How's this uh, carnival happening? You know, the circus being with the unknown and the fun house being the carnival. And I don't know. These are two very interesting filmmakers. Todd Browning, I think, is like of his time, kind of like the Fairley brothers of his time, working with a lot of like disabled people and going out of his way to, I don't know, like have protagonists that are disabled and just another man who's obsessed with like the circus as well. And uh, Toby Hooper is just a, a classic horror filmmaker, and I thought we should give him his due. Oh yeah, I realize we've never talked about any Toby Hooper. Uh, we've talked Body about bags. That's true. J- same mistake I made about John Carpenter uh, when I said that on the Patreon last week that we hadn't talked about him. Body bags. That's God. how we. That's how we sell the episodes, and we've never talked about them before. <laughs> Body bags. Uh, that was a fun episode. I recorded that day on uh, a day of personal tragedy, and I, I played through it like Jordan in his flu game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, JT, how, how did you take to this double feature? Um, I with a big fat smile on my face, I tell you, <laughs> I like a while ago. I think Malcolm, you had brought up like about like a fixation with old movies being at the circus or mm-hmm. something yeah. like that, and I had that in my mind the entire time. And much like you, I have some great carny memories. Uh, there was like a little carnival like um by my house growing up that happened every year, and it's like. In, I mean, we'll get to it later in Funhouse, but so much of that is just reminiscent. I mean, Funhouse is a lot dirtier than the carnival was, but uh, yeah, it was a good time. You like to imagine, you know, the things you didn't see. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. Happening. Yeah. Funhouse I was style. I was a little child. I didn't. I they they kept me away from the the titty flashing tent then. True. <laughs> well, you never see little Joey go to the titty flashing tent in Funhouse, do you? Um, no, I don't think so. No. So maybe he doesn't even know that that's there either. That's for good, all we know. That's a good move. Toby Hooper's like, we don't need to do weird yeah. things with children. All I'm saying <laughs> is there could have been some depravity at that carnival that you didn't know about. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there was. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've said it on this podcast before that the, the circus motif is in cinema something I always associate with being bored. Like yeah. I, I like I hate that Bergman movie. Uh, sawdust and tinsel oh more like so damn and boring <laughs> uh and like uh 
there's even that Woody Allen movie Shadows in Fog where there's like a 15 minute circus detour. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, that was going to be one of the best Woody Allen movies. But that 15 minutes really, <laughs> really did a number on me. <laughs> Listen to those two filmmakers, though, Igmar Bergman, Woody Allen. I don't think they have fun at the circus. Exactly. They, they're just looking at the freaks and they're yeah. like, oh, look at these freaks. <laughs> I mean, it's like Fellini, too. I feel like they're the cinematic fixation with a circus is trying to elevate it to something of like performance. And these two films are like getting in down and dirty you're with the freaks you're in you're, you're grimy you yeah. don't have arms it's great well i think also uh in the silent tradition uh the circus makes more sense yeah. kind of like i mean uh freaks is a sound film but uh it, he's still very clearly like carrying over some of the stylistics from his silent period and then you also look at the chaplin film the circus and obviously the the silent film aesthetic works wonders there and uh this is easily my favorite circus movie that i'd seen so far uh this lon cheney picture also the first time i've seen lon cheney in a movie quite a talent crazy that to think about uh that i've never seen one of his movies but yeah you lived up to the expectations and you also get joan crawford uh in this movie an early joan crawford role yeah, she's looking. She's looking good. Um, no, Lon, Lon Chaney is kind of like what I've seen from his performances. You know, I'll, I'll admit maybe it's only two or three, but he's kind of like the ideal silent actor to where you know he's so expressive with his face, and he could really uh, transfer all the emotions just through his pure physicality. The unknown or the dangerous cuck follows Lon Chaney as Alonzo. A, uh, a beta male whose circus act consists of being an armless man throwing knives with his feet. Uh, however, he only pretends to be armless to hide his two-thumbed hand, which is his signature mark as a notorious strangler. <laughs> which, if that's not a premise for a movie, I mean, come on, that's amazing right there. Like the other circusmen, you know, he vies for the heart of Joan Crawford as Nanon. Is that her name? Yeah. That's Nanon. a Nanon. <laughs> yeah, QAnon. Yeah, <laughs> such a strange name. Uh, I guess it's an old timey name that I'm not aware of, but uh, her biggest fear is men's arms. Hey, a match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this, uh, it's very interesting what this movie's getting at, like before he turns into, you know, strangle mode, you know, kill this bitch mode. Um, it is like this very like, you know, commentary, you know, men are always touching women inappropriately. And we have a woman who's completely shook into her core by it and, and, you know, befriends this armless man because of it. And it's just a just a very interesting dynamic that I feel like I've, you know, watching silent films, there's never been a, a, a matching that's been so odd. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's also just so perfect. Yeah. But I guess that's what's so strange about it is that it seems almost so on the nose in this like. 50 minute film you know mm -hmm. uh where everything is so compressed it just like w when stories are that obvious it just calls attention to all the detail that's in the filmmaking process and all of the uh i guess thematic stuff that you can draw out of a story like that i mean even like in relation to the arm stuff the like the the chad malabar the mighty like he has to learn like at first to like sort of ease up like don't grope like don't be so gropey and i think that like that's interesting in that like it gives depth to his character that he has to sort of like overcome that at the advice of alonzo 
Yeah, exactly. In the beginning when Alonzo is giving him ironic advice, like he's setting up Malabar <laughs> for failure. At first I thought we were going to have like a something about Mary style, <laughs> just like cavalcade of toxic men vying for the heart of this uh, all too perfect woman where he's like telling him the wrong advice and you see it play out in comedic fashion. Well, that's what's what's great about um, the strongman character is that he ends up being a pretty good guy. Mm-hmm. Like he's a pretty, he's a solid motherfucker by all definitions. <laughs> I mean, they are like, they, or no, they're, they're friends. It's just the fact that he is now going for Nanan. He's like, okay, friendship over. You're going for the girl that I love, but haven't told you yet that I love. I've only told Kozo, my little <laughs> friend. Well, that's what's very uh, intriguing about this movie and kind of makes it a little bit scary almost is like just this undertorrent of pure, uh, not evilness, but just pure uh, spitefulness that yeah. goes through Alonzo to where I think he is friends with the strongman to the extent he could be friends with anyone but he's just very insecure probably has never you know found love or anything like that and it's just it's so spiteful and just operates purely off that spite because of it i mean in relation to that spitefulness i like the the turn that happens early on where you find out about him like faking uh not having arms because like up until that point i'm like okay alonzo is like an incel and should just be like up front with this gal but then you like you feel like somewhat sympathetic towards him, but then you just feel cheated because it's like he's <laughs> even worse of a shithead than you thought. It's it's really so pessimistic in terms of its romance, even though like if you're just looking at it from Malabar's perspective, it's a really nice movie. Like he ends <laughs> up learning how to be a nice guy, nice enough guy to her and like not be gropey, as you said. And um, so in order to ascend the friend zone, you know, uh, <laughs> he decides, uh, Alonzo, that is Lon Chaney, decides that he must cut off his own arms in order to get closer to Nanon because if they ever hook up, you know, and she feels those arms, it's over for him, which I also saw a parallel in this week. I watched a uh, watched an Adam Sandler movie called The Cobbler. Yeah. And when he puts on these shoes, he becomes the person whose shoes they are. And he almost has sex with a model until he has to take off his shoes and realizes Uh, that he can't do it because she'll realize it's Adam Sandler. That's a very invention of lying, coercing women (laughs) into sex. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty uh, bad. I mean, a lot of people fuck with their sneakers on, though. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. (laughs) That's true. You should be. I just keep them on. Makes me, you know, I'm just elite like that. (laughs) I think think that's why writer-director Todd McCarthy set that scene in the shower. Because he knows people will fuck with their sneakers on, but they're not going to keep the sneakers on in the shower. He considered this. He considered the fact You need the grip sometimes (laughs) that the sneakers provide. Anyway, back to this movie. Putting on Uh, shower shoes. (laughs) I, I think that... Uh, Browning's visual style really works wonders here because he kind of withholds from those real money shots mm-hmm. uh, until they're really necessary, whether they're the wide shot of like everything that's going on uh, in a circus act or a very expressive close-up of Lon Chaney. Toward the end, you just get that heartbreaking close-up of that tear running down yeah. his face. And it's just like, I it makes you feel like there hasn't been another close up in the whole movie the yeah. impact that, that one has you know in terms of withholding like some of the most like graphic stuff that I th- think for me happened early on is when 
uh, Alonzo, you still think he's like a, a legit armless man when he's being beaten by Nanan's uh, father, Zanzi. You just see it through the doors and you don't get like a whole lot of it. But it like it looks he's pummeling him pretty intensely. Mm hmm. No, yeah, Browning is, like, not a very flashy stylist, but, like, a very good filmmaker and knows yes. knows exactly when to, you know, pull it out, so to speak. And, like, know, knows when to ramp Cheney up to those levels, too, because, I mean, when, uh, you know, Cheney finds out that, uh, you know, uh, Joan Crawford has fallen in love with the muscle man, I mean, he does some of the craziest facial acting of all time of kind of like a... You know, trying to look happy, but you're really sad. Some yeah. Just extreme mugging. Oh, I want to go back to that scene. Yeah. I want to go all the way back to the beginning first, though, because when you mm-hmm. first see Alonzo do his act with Nanon, this might be the most kind of uh, creative visual approach to any scene in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to say most creative, but uh, yeah. the one that it can catch like really any audience off guard is the way that the camera is uh, mounted on this wheel and you're just spinning along with both characters and you get the shot reverse shot where both of them are spinning on this same circle uh, doing this knife throwing routine where he's throwing them with his feet it's really incredible and like the the motion and like i i don't know it's, it's like the most movement that you see in this whole film within mm-hmm. that first couple minutes and then you go to the scene that you just talked about where he shows up armless uh joan crawford so happy to see him he's right back in his old friend zone ways you know because she like embraces him and he's like this is it she loves me. Like, no, she's happy to see her friend, you bozo. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you I'm marrying Muscle Man up there. And then it cuts to that offstage uh, location with that huge spiral staircase. And all of that empty space between the three of them just feels huge. Like it's one of the most expressive uses of space uh, within this set. Uh, just like watching him descend the stairs to go join the three of them is haunting and like so sad, even though, you you know, you're feeling sad for this guy who just killed this woman's father earlier in the movie. I mean, there are a lot of really powerful sets like that. When I think uh, Alonzo is going to the doctor to get his arms chopped off and that's that operating room that's like fucking huge and you see like the theater seats around it. It's so intense. Um, Also... Uh, this was like still not a complete version of this film, mm-hmm. which is interesting because like the narrative economy is so ridiculous. It's like if you look at what screenwriting teachers will teach you, you know, and writing like a pilot for a uh, hour long series or something like that, you have like that style of narrative beats. It's like so concise and so like always moving forward, but also still having such attention to detail to character. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know that there is missing footage. This film was lost for a very long time and then found through the Cinémathèque Française in the 60s. And uh, I, I believe most versions are anywhere from 50 to 63 minutes because of speed. Like if mm. you look online, you'll find a 60-minute version. You'll find a 50-minute version. Pretty much the same film. Just played at different speeds. Interesting. So the 60-minute version is just slow, slower? Yeah, because silent <laughs> films all have those fucking speed problems. I mean, so yeah. many of them, like the public domain versions, you watch them on YouTube and they're sped up to pieces. And like sometimes it's funny or whatever. And yeah. some comedy, it really works. But that's like not how they were intended to be seen, you know? Yeah. Like obviously, there are filmmakers who used uh, fast forwarding effects, obviously, to great effect. Uh, but yeah, I, I think 
this is a really interesting film where I feel like if you watch it in two different versions with two different scores, it's like, it's not a totally different film, but it's, uh, you could get very different feelings out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think it's a economic stance to plot and stories, you know, part of the reason why I enjoy it so much and how, you know, certain scenes are just able to get across so much emotionally to where you don't even need extra stuff. Kind of like when we learned that Alonzo actually does have hints, we do get this great tough guy, mugging where like uh alonzo's like and they're gonna feel these hands you know i might have to use them on him and he's you know just flexing hard as fuck and he and it's like all right i get i get what he's about yeah after he makes the ultimate sacrifice you know you get a truly intense climax where the strong man is doing this stunt where he's being pulled in opposite directions by two horses on treadmills. Mm, seems incredibly dang dangerous. <laughs> oh my god, one of the like it's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Actually, I want to get back to that. Sorry for going so out of order on this, but I just looked at my notepad and I'll be remiss not to mention the intercutting before this. When you have Alonzo and Kozo kind of working together in their scheme, Kozo just the wall that Alonzo bounces off all of his ideas, and you see the Nanon and Malabar romance flourishing while like the evil scheme of Alonzo is flourishing as well. Incredible intercutting there. Mm -hmm. Like really, really great dynamics that leads you perfectly to that climax uh, with the emotional climax that we talked about, and then right after that, the dual treadmill horse climax. <laughs> <laughs> you know there's there's also an interesting thing browning does to some some scenes where it seems like he has a like some sort of like wall or just literally it seems like pure like texture almost crossfaded into the mm -hmm. into the scenery or whatever especially i think i remember it during a muscle man joan crawford romance scene yeah it looks like you're watching it through drapes or something it's yeah, very yeah. strange he's just he's playing around he's keeping things interesting yeah exactly you know? i mean i i didn't see any tinting on any versions of this so maybe that's something along the lines of like uh t how a lot of silent films are tinted in certain presentations True. you know i feel like it's a weird thing that we have because we haven't talked about any silence on this film or on this podcast rather uh wait we talked about earth yeah uh, until like a few weeks ago we talked about uh Dovshenko's earth on the patreon it is very strange the different forms that silent films come in it's like the most i guess malleable after the fact uh type of film where it's like i saw sunrise once at the godforsaken cine family and there was like a live score, but it was like a post-rock band, basically. And it's like, what? I, I don't yeah. know. It was very strange. And it like, uh, obviously, it showcases the uh, ability for music to be emotionally manipulative in movies and overshadow the images. Because it's like, once I saw it with a more proper score and on a print, I was like, oh, this is the best movie ever. That was just a weird experience, you know? No, there's definitely some uh, some silent movies I've tried to watch on YouTube think that there was a frank brusage movie that i really wanted to check out it just had like the most dog shit like tinny <laughs> piano score i'm like this just isn't doable yeah it, it really isn't so <laughs> yeah I, you know in, instead of uh theaters doing that thing where you know they bring in like a cool rock band to play over um i don't know some russian movie or whatever they should have like bring back the old like guy who explains what's going on yeah. during the movies <laughs> so, like, and this is what's going on here this is what they would have said <laughs> they should just go full benchy mode but like american contemporary version of it yeah or, yeah uh and s i think i think it would drive the people in i think cinema would be safe yeah if you got seth rogan at your amc <laughs> commenting on uh the new russell crowe movie <laughs> so 
as this stunt goes awry, you know, uh, Lon Chaney tries to kill the strong man by uh, messing with the horses in the treadmill. He, you know, fucking, you get a great shot of him threatening, throwing the knife with his foot. <laughs> that he has, he has the knife cocked with his foot at the two like security or cop guys that come up to him. And then he ends up getting killed by the horse. And it says, you know, an end to his hate called death. And it really <laughs> cues you into like, this is not a romantic story at all for yeah. him. It's a story of his hatred, you know? And it's like, on or it's a film like about obsessive romanticism's psychotic and dangerous nature and how quickly that leads into pure hatred you know mm-hmm. and often just violence as well and uh, i think it's a really dark film and even though as we said like uh looking at it from the other perspective it is kind of romantic and you mm-hmm. have a different title card for her too it's a, yeah. uh, and her until uh hate was marriage and she got married to malabar <laughs> and happily ever after but that doesn't matter because the guy you empathized with just committed some violent acts and ended up dying yeah no i think that's what's powerful about this movie it's because of course it's condemning what uh you know alonzo's doing but it also spends a lot of time you know making sure you sympathize with this character and you know you really get inside his mind state you know it is he does have a of course like maybe he's hiding his hands because he's strangling people but he he effectively thinks of himself as disabled just because of his dual thumb thing and Mm -hmm. goes the extra step to make it you know circus you know freak show quote-unquote level and it's just a interesting look at his psychology and how it just breaks down throughout this short movie it's just a it's really well done rating four bullets (laughs) jt what do you think uh I like the intensity of that. I am giving it four and a half bullets. Uh, this really uh, jived with me. And like, I don't know. I Between like watching this and Earth, it has me wanting to dig up more silent movies and like go back to that and see what you can do. Just like predominantly like playing around with like images alone. But this was like such a sensational time and especially how frantic it gets there at the end, just breaking down and like the rapid cutting with like the horses going wild. Um, yeah, I love this picture. I also wanted to shout out there was a double that uh, was used for Cheney with like the foot, some of the foot acting and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that was really sensational and like held my interest a lot of time just like seeing someone like light a cigarette with their toes and like bring it up to Cheney's face I was so fucking cool yeah I like that his character is so used to it that even when he's revealed that he has arms again he's still lighting his cigarettes with his feet and stuff like that uh also a shot of him playing guitar with his feet incredible (laughs) uh I'm going four bullets on this one I I already did my closing thoughts we'll be right back on extended clip boys 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 I turn my back, and there you are, slapping each other again. I couldn't trust any of you for a minute. You're sick. And we're back on Extended Clip. Uh, You know, on the Patreon this week, we had a real hot one. We talked about uh, John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Check it out. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, the Patreon's $2 a month, and uh, the After Hours feed, ugh, you're, you're missing out if you're not listening to it. And the next episode we're going to be doing on that After Hours feed is going to be on uh, Takashi Miike's Visitor Q. Yeah, this this was my choice. It kind of came from my early obsession of like gross and depraved movies, and I'd always see this one 
talked about and you know it's a movie i i thought about you know and i, I had i had imaginations you know things things i thought were going to happen in the movie that didn't even happen so check it out was it was this movie on that list it was on the list the, yeah, real heads know what we're talking about here <laughs> that was so formative to malcolm's early cinephilia the 100 most disturbing movies of all time <laughs> wait where's the list can you find it online still? i think it was a complex list or no 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 it was this there was this guy on youtube called horrible reviews he was he was sick i i watched one of his videos like two months ago i'm like this guy's out of any youtube movie reviewers horrible reviews that's the goat <laughs> So subscribe to the Patreon. It's two bucks. <laughs> Patreon.com slash extended clip. And for six months, you get the PDF. Uh, PDF coming early next week for this month. And uh, I, I'm almost done writing right now. What I think is probably the best essay I've written for it yet. Uh, it's the first one I'd even call an essay uh, on the, fi- the, the, the cinema of 1968 and uh, its political classifications. So uh, pull up your nerd glasses <laughs> for that one. Put on Buffalo Springfield. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, patreon.com slash extended clip. And we're back on extended clip. Malcolm in the middle. Everyone's favorite. Well, everyone's second favorite segment. I feel like people really like the Patreon promo now. True. Yeah. (laughs) People are loving that. That's the reason the fucking 20 second skip ahead button was invented. Uh, (laughs) did, Did you watch anything this week, Malcolm? Yeah. It's yeah. Once again, I'm in the middle. Malcolm in the Middle. I watched the movies. Um, I watched a little horror movie. It's October, you know, called Red Spirit Lake. This was, you know, it's a micro-budget shot-on-video uh, horror movie by Charles Pinion, made in the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting movie about a, a woman who inherits a property, and there's these real estate gangster goons that are after her. But in the meanwhile, the you know, where she lives is haunted, too. So it kind of intersects with, like... These uh, these gangsters who will stop at nothing, which includes raping um, some of the pe- guests she has over, and the the ghosts kind of do you know come back take over and I don't know it's just it's one of the it's everything you want from like a psychotronic horror movie it's you know it's disgusting it's like goofy and also just kind of baffling in a sense just where where it goes and where it leads and uh, I really want to check out more by Charles Pinion because I, I was I was kind of floored by this. What about you, JT? Um. I, uh, sorry, I was just getting a little stretch <laughs> that, in there. Yeah, that was the rare um and <clears throat> combo. <laughs> He's ready to prowl. <laughs> I, uh, I had the unfortunate pleasure of uh, watching the Comey rule uh, this week. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, my friend Tim, who we had on the pod before, he does like some YouTube like stuff. And like we've talked about like liberal dog shit by and large together doing stuff for that. And he asked if I wanted to talk about Comey Rule with him. Uh, so I watched it and just like, let me tell you, folks, I would rather watch a video of a monkey getting a blowjob. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> a callback to the off mic 40 minute riff. <laughs> I really want to see a video of a monkey I, getting his dick I did, sucked. To be honest, I did search and find <laughs> a, a video before while I was on my phone looking about what to talk about. I had audacity I, paused for so long. <laughs> we were done. <laughs> I just wanted to bring it up on mic, but it's, I'll show you. <laughs> what are movies if not images? And if this is a powerful image. Yeah, that's I'll, true. I'll show you the video when we pause again. But um, <laughs> I have to counter this. Give me my Deleuze book. <laughs> Grad school Eddie at it again. <laughs> but the Comey rule, like, 
literally the first episode, it starts with uh, Stephen Colbert being like, oh, man, James Comey. So you like he's uh, you, the, you got the Hillary email stuff. Now he's going after Trump for his uh, connections to Russia. I don't know whether I like or hate this guy. Uh, what is he? Service Snape. And that's how they start the fucking movie. So you know what type of like liberal bullshit it's going to be. The first episode is devoted to like their investigation of Hillary's emails um, in 2016. Just like, I don't know, no conflict, loose plot of just like characters like uh, strung together. Um, I don't know. There's some things that are like just funny to laugh at. Like Joe Latruglio is Jeff Sessions <laughs> for like three scenes. So I'm happy he's getting that paper. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. So much of it is like centered on like Jeff Daniels, Comey being like, Ugh. I want to keep, uh, I want to keep the FBI like apolitical. Like there's no, like <laughs> <they're>, they <laughs> can't show any political affiliation. And it's just like the dumbest fucking shit. I really wish he, like he should have been hamming it up as his dumb and dumber character. <laughs> um, that would have been a better performance, but yeah, just. Skip this one, Dude, folks. Michael Ian Black's got to be seething with rage that <laughs> other members of the state were in this and not him. <laughs> I like to think of a scene where Comey's, you know, puts it all together, but he's in the bathroom, so it's shitting on the toilet. <laughs> also, when I heard they were investigating Hillary's emails, that'd be funny if, like, halfway through the episode, Comey's like, wait a second. Cheese pizza? <laughs> <laughs> Garlic bread? Wait a second. Like, <laughs> what is this? You just see Michael Ian Black then enter the frame. <laughs> just so jealous that a state member was in this and he just appears in makeup and, you know, he's a political guy. That's his character. And he says, I think I left a pizza related map on a handkerchief in your office. <laughs> Wasn't that the evil? A pizza related map on a handkerchief? <laughs> That's strange. I don't know why they're ordering 37 cheese pizzas for their party in the upcoming week. Very strange. Eddie, what have you seen this week? I saw something that was almost as scary as the pedophilic cabal that is the Democratic Party. <laughs> well, that's got to be pretty scary. What is it? Uh, it's All the Colors of the Dark, the 1972 film by Sergio Martino. And, you know, if you're haunted uh, within what may or may not be a dream world by, you know, violence and just abstract space and set design, you have a few options. Uh, you can keep taking the vitamin cocktail that your boyfriend forces you to drink. Uh, you can seek psychiatric help or you can attend a black mass. Uh, all of these options, you know, they have their benefits. They have their upsides. They have their downsides. You know, this film kind of explores all of the options <laughs> that you can take in this scenario. Uh, it's just fucking ridiculous movie like this, this otherworldly dream state that you're introduced to right away with this very sparse set design and like minimal but very striking use of color is like nothing I've ever seen. And I've seen a few Sergio Martino films now. I went on The Optimism Vaccine, another film podcast to talk about a couple of his movies. But uh, back to this. Each of these set pieces just kind of bridges the seemingly obligatory plot points, you know? Uh, and it's just like the set pieces carry so much weight in the same way that someone like Brian De Palma does, uh, especially with like movement uh, through these like perfectly composed scope frames, uh, but moving through them and constantly deframing and reframing women uh, within these frames and it always leading to either sexual or violent 
quote unquote pleasure. It's it's just like an incredible film, and uh, never fuck with anyone who has like beads as a door in their apartment. <laughs> <laughs> they're just begging to be part of an atmospheric horror set piece. Yeah, you know? they're probably gonna dose you with some psychedelics. <laughs> when you're not looking, you might get dosed. Uh, I, yeah, these Italian horror movies, man, they're they're crazy. I, I'm glad I waited to watch them, honestly, because now I just have all the classics to go through. It is crazy how Italy was just killing horror. Yeah, from that for that like, decade, insane, and the '60s too. True, true. The the few Bava '60s ones I watched in the last week or two were fucking incredible. Blood and Black Lace, just out of this world picture. Um, we'll be right back on extended clip. And we're back on extended clip talking about The Fun House, a 1981 film by Toby Hooper. What is The Fun House? Well, a group of teens go to the carnival to smoke weed, make out, look at the freaks, and escape the conservative home life of the Reagan years. <laughs> uh, home life is much worse, however, for the monster, uh, a mutated man who lives among uh, the circus workers uh, whose abuse from his freak show Barker father leads him to uh, murderous hijinks and tendencies. It is, uh, you know, thinking about this movie, it's a real simple movie. Mm-hmm. They go to the carnival. They look at some things. They, you know, look at the attractions. They get stuck in one of the attractions, witness some bad things, try to get out. They can't. Yeah. Like the first I, I want to say like 40 or 50 minutes are like just straight up like having a good time at the carnival. I and love I it. fucking love that. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's it's 35 minutes in that one of them suggests we should stay overnight mm-hmm. uh, in the funhouse, you know. And uh, the first 35 minutes, you know, they have their spooks and scares to them. These kind of like mini set pieces, almost like the mm-hmm. beginning, which is very playful and fun. You get... You know, many movies referenced as you open on uh, a horror fan's bedroom. And it's this little boy, Joey, who you could see being, you know, something of a director or audience stand in, uh, as well as like his older sister being a stand in uh, in this film that kind of takes a lot of different perspectives, which I'll get to. But uh, yeah, it opens like it's going to be a nice POV slasher kill. But uh, then he does like an over. Uh, exaggeration of like the way people stab down and away from the bodies in horror movies you know Mm -hmm. uh and like then you see the rubber knife get bent or whatever and it reveals that it's just a it's a a little prank it's a little kid having fun and you get to see some great floppy titties yeah like right off the dot right off the top i don't want to be too goofy but i you know i've never had a sister before but would you guys do pranks to your sisters while they were naked? <laughs> Not while they were naked. <laughs> Not while they were naked. That is a bridge too far, but you know, all I'm saying is attitudes about sexuality were a lot different back then. Yeah. It was a free love household. Well, I mean, you mentioning the, the horror-centric room of the little boy, Joey, I think that, I mean, obviously... Hooper is someone who he himself respects the classics, but I feel like that's what makes horror like one of the like top tier genres is because there is so much classic respecting oh, that yeah. happens throughout. 
so as we said, uh, they decide to stay overnight in the funhouse, uh, getting into trouble uh, when they witness the monster kill a uh, fortune teller lady. And this is one of the craziest scenes. Like, so the first 35 minutes, one like recurring motif throughout their hangout section is voyeurism. You know, you open on the kid watching uh, and even looking at his sister's titties in the shower for a quick second before he stabs I just her. I know what they look like. <laughs> just saying, just saying. Uh, but then they go to like the peep show that they don't pay for and they cut a little mm-hmm. hole in the wall, you know, and there's a lot of voyeurism going on. Uh, and then the the climactic voyeurism for them in that first chunk of the movie is watching this circus freak who they haven't even seen what he really looks like because he always wears the Frankenstein mask paying for sex with the fortune teller lady who kicked them out of their uh, out of her tent earlier because they were stoned and couldn't stop laughing at her fortune teller mysticism that scene is so brutal uh you know and it's just keystones of like classic kind of slasher stuff that you even see in texas chainsaw massacre where there's like a clear you know impotence kind of thing you mm-hmm. know uh while while the texas chainsaw stuff you know you use the the phallic object and this one it's that he busts right away uh and he feels very bad about that you know uh and more than anything he just wants his fucking money back you know you pay a hundred <laughs> bucks but you expect you know a little longer than 30 seconds uh, well i mean i really like in general, like the sort of visual metaphor of him, like being like dressed as the Frankenstein at first, like again, respecting the classics. But then like when we finally see him as a more grotesque, like contemporary monster, then. Uh, yeah, I, I like the way it builds up to that moment, too, because with each kind of attraction that they hit, there is like a, a twinge of sourness and like kind of a almost not impending danger to it that uh, kind of climaxes, like you said, with that scene. I mean, when they go to check out the the mutated cows too and you see um you know the cow that has two heads that's actually very similar to you know the frankenstein monster yeah exactly we see ourselves and then there's just a strange scene that's not even really explained really where they go see like a baby in a test tube and it like it bites him or something like that No, it does. No, he yeah. says it oh, bites yeah, him as a yeah. joke yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and there, there's like some paint on the outside okay. that's supposed to be like blood and it's supposed to be like this gross thing and he wipes some of the it looks like he wipes something from that test tube onto the other guy and that's why the other guy gets mad at him. okay still but strange still he, strange well later on yeah. uh the father tells frank the the monster like your brother tad back there oh and i think that's what he's referring to i think it's supposed to be implied that that fake test tube baby is actually the brother of the monster. Okay, interesting. I I need to watch movies better. But, uh, <laughs> see, but that's that's great. That's great that that's just a small part of it too. Yeah, and it's just. I all of the little shows and attractions that they partake in have their own little arc, and it's like really beautifully done. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I I love the Dracula dude that they go see, like the Dracula the Impaler, <laughs> like who kind of <laughs> mixes his monster metaphors a little too much <laughs> while he's getting drunk and uh, probably abusing his daughter, who he uses as a as a audience plant, and like, uh, you know, it's supposed to be this cheesy thing uh, where it's an obvious trick, you know. And then you just get that shocking close-up of blood squirting out of her mouth and the audience gasps. The audience who had been heckling it for five minutes. It's quite a long scene, you know? (laughs) Uh, And I think that payoff is beautiful. And, like, even a fake gag like that 
Hooper executes so perfectly in terms of the editing and framing and special effects. And I like how he's doing that. Like, I mean, there it's like uh, father, daughter. He's like working with this like carny family stuff. I mean, some actually related by blood, but like, I don't know. I like going with like these sort of roving, entertaining troops, like, of course, build like that type of bond and connection that like feels a lot closer than like I don't know what we see of like Amy and like Joey and like their family life. Yeah. Uh, the the family life for the the main character is uh, Amy, played by Elizabeth Barrage, and like her little brother Joey, who we see do the the creepy prank on her in the beginning, then sneaks out of the house and goes and like watches the four teens hang out uh, from a distance until they get stuck in the funhouse, and then he has to wait for them to get out. And uh, yeah, you see the parents come pick them up and it just seems like a very typical kind of household other than the fact that the mom is just so dead. Yeah. <laughs> the mom, like when she comes to pick up the son after the, the circus manager finds him and calls his parents, she's like, yeah, poor baby. We'll, we'll get right straight home to bed. Like yeah. She's just so <laughs> over it. No, I, I love Joey and kind of like the the role he plays is you know you we cut to him after hanging out with the teens and his scenes are so silent especially after the um the carnival closes and you kind of get like this uh i don't know it's just it is it's great because you know when you're a child you kind of are lonely you're watching like teenagers doing the stuff you want to do and yeah it's, it's great to have like kind of like this silent remove pov of you know all the stuff that's going on within the movie well when they enter the fun house and joey's watching from a few attractions over you get this beautiful crane shot that's kind of mirrored in the final yeah, shot. yeah uh where it's just like pulling back from almost being like behind joey not a proper pov shot but you're mm. in his percent uh in his perspective you know uh and then it just pulls back and just keeps pulling back and yeah. like does a complete like 182 just to expose the entire circus set and it's just like such a kind of soothing uh mm-hmm. pullback there where you're given time to kind of think about all these moving uh like narrative parts that don't really matter because it's kind of a hangout film, mm-hmm. but it all in- informs how the horror is going to play out as the film ramps up toward the end, you know? True. I like to call that angel POV. <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not they'll make it out of the fun house, as we said, you know, they, they witness this terrible thing and then they're locked in the fun house and the monster and his dad know they're in there and it's, <laughs> you know, uh, they're hunting them down for the last 30 minutes. But, uh, whether or not they'll make it out is almost an afterthought kind of like from its opening scene it showcases its self-aware nature of these scare tactics and like narrative structures and that they're known to the audience as well as even some of the characters you know who are the horror freaks you know and every kill is one of these freak shows into itself like hooper uses the first half of the film to display how each of these people runs their act in the circus. And then the back half of the film, when each of these teens gets killed off, it's like its own show into itself. It's such a spectacular set piece. Every time one of them dies, (laughs) like uh, I'm not saying he takes glee in it, but I think he kind of allows you to, because of the excess uh, even though it's like not gory either, yeah. it's just like the mechanics of how the funhouse works makes it that horror spectacle rather than blood and gore. 
No, yeah, it's very it's very intricate, like mm-hmm. I would say. And like, yeah, I agree. I mean, the funhouse itself is like a great set piece that begets other great set pieces. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't I don't think Hooper's, you know, taking joy and killing these characters because that's that's a little base. That's a little base for Hooper. I think he's he's you know, he's playing to the theatrics of a carnival and a show and you know, he's gonna we're gonna make these kills elaborate, you know, this, they're yeah. gonna be entertaining. But you know, not exactly uh, I don't know, spiteful or taking and seeing a I don't know a woman's stomach rip open or something like that. No, exactly. It's like Hooper understands that like the atmosphere and like you know formal beauty as this is a wonderfully photographed movie from the first shot to the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, just beauty like in every shot, really. Like, but also narratively necessary kind of beauty in a strange way. Uh, but like that the atmosphere and beauty and shock of like a proper spooky set piece uh, <laughs> is so much more rewarding than just like general narrative payoff and how that usually works you know definitely i think he does it like through and you see this in texas chainsaw as well it's just very potent imagery stuff mm-hmm. like that like just uh the the monster's you know bloody claws or something like that using that to get his uh, message across and i think the the two huge crane shots that i mentioned earlier like uh, representing both the the young boy and the girl after she you know assumes final girl uh, status you know and by the way when she is the last one alive Amy the the film stylistically ascends completely into the next level where he's just like rapidly cutting these shots of very quick pans from left to right and it just becomes so manic but it's still so well composed within those cinemascope frames I don't know how he accomplishes that. And I, I like kind of how, like, with that one, you see the, you know, the, the monster just kind of come in where I feel like the other three, you'll have, like, this great, almost kind of like when in Texas Chainsaw, when Leatherface opens the door very quickly, just kind of like the monster just jumping out of nowhere just because he knows the fun house so well. And he'll just, wherever they are, they're, you know, they're not safe. There's all these, you know, little contraptions that mm-hmm. uh, mess with them. And, you know, including, like, the machinery, too, or the, I guess, the animatronic puppets, too. I think Cooper does a good job there and kind of keeping it like ambiguous or something where it's like, I thought, you know, going into this, I thought maybe it's like the, these animatronic, uh, you know, puppets or whatever are going to be the killers, but they kind of seem to be alive. Not really, but like there's moments where you're like, Hmm, are they going to come into the picture as mm-hmm. well? He, he, he deals with that very intelligently. Another thing that I feel like I really dug was just like in terms of, I mean, it happens, I would say with like, Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw, but like the sympathies that you feel somewhat with the monster in this, mm-hmm. I think are really powerful because it's like, and like the teens do like some, the, well, one, the, Richie in particular does some shithead behavior by like trying to steal the fucking money. And when you see the monster like accidentally kill that woman or just sort of get into a, a rage and sort of go out of control it happens in a very similar like he's he's trying to express his sexuality in the same way the teens like above him are doing like before they witness this they're also getting it on or and then we cut down to the lower level where he's doing the same yeah of course and like uh like that film uh those i guess sympathies if you want to call them that are drawn from 
seeing the root of the issue and these like cycles of family abuse, you know, and in Texas Chainsaw, it becomes, you know, this huge, you know, family <laughs> history of skeletons in the house, pretty much like, uh, and in this one, it's just that relationship with his father, who's played wonderfully by Kevin Conway. Uh, the, the credit for his character is freak show Barker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's just the guy hauling people in and like, I, I laughed at him the first couple times you see him, you know, you, you just see him while the teens are walking around and he's bringing people into different attractions, just talking about the, how, how he's got the nicest girls in town, just swinging there, you know, swinging around. And they tent. wiggle and they dance. They wiggle and they dance, folks. They wiggle <laughs> and they dance. Come inside and see Daisy May, a two-headed cow. See a sheep with six legs. Yes, six. Count them yourself. Six legs. And these are creatures of God, ladies and gentlemen, not man. There's like a lot of time spent where we're, we're, you know, with the teen character POV just looking down at you know the monster and his dad, and mm-hmm. I, even to the point where it, I, it shifts the POV to like a regular. Uh, you know, film style thing where it's like, okay, now we're just paying attention to their storyline too. And I thought that was a very like uh, subtle but smart shift in like the mise-en-scene to mm-hmm. really, you know, concrete. It's like, yeah, you you know, you are supposed to sympathize with this guy a lot. Or we've spent so much time with these circus members, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, they're, they're just as much as value as, you know, these sex-having teens. <laughs> a little sympathy for the incel. <laughs> And there's so much detail to all these people too. There's that old lady that scares them in the bathroom and then throughout the film just keeps popping up and saying that God is watching them. And the, she's even in one of just like, I think one of the most subtly brilliant scenes in this is when they decide, you know, about 35, almost 40 minutes at this point in uh, to stay the night over. And the two girls, Amy and Liz have to call their parents, Buzz and Richie cool guys don't have to call their parents to (laughs) tell them that they're staying out, you know, but they do the classic move of telling their parents that they're sleeping over at the other one's house. Mm -hmm. And Hooper like glides across the two phone booths very elegantly, but right smack dab in the middle of the two phone booths is that old lady who accosted them in the restroom earlier. (laughs) And she's just kind of lingering in the back of the frame. I was like, okay, this lady's the killer. She's going to start killing people. Oh yeah. She's just like digging through the trash. (laughs) (laughs) She's just trolling. She's really just trolling all those people. I think that's why she's the MVP is because she knows what to do. She doesn't do the voyeurism. She doesn't do the cycles, the cycles of abuse. She just, does the trolling just get some nice food out of the the garbage can and then you know here's some teen girls talking about i think i'm gonna have sex for the first time it's like yeah. god's watching <laughs> just know that don't you know don't do anything you wouldn't be comfortable with him saying read your book <laughs> <laughs> it is fun and that's also like cooper kind of like trying to play with cliches there too being yeah, very direct about it and mm-hmm. you know a little bit of humor a little bit yeah. of fun so yeah as i said each of these deaths are very spectacular uh Particularly when Kevin Conway, the dad of the monster, dies, just gets impaled uh, so beautifully and then tries to bring Buzz with him. It's just that he's just trying to hug him to death in that that cold gay embrace. (laughs) 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 Because well, I, I think I bring it up because it is it's not a conservative film, but it makes a point not even to bring in like specifics of conservative life at the time mm-hmm. it just already feels like it's there you know yeah. mm-hmm. like it, it it's a very easy way to break down 80s horror movies as either being critiques of uh you know reagan's america or just being conservative into mm-hmm. themselves but i think this does a good job at just assuming that 
as the world they live in, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the the final, the climax, uh, the final boss level <laughs> uh, is Amy versus the monster, you know? And uh, it's just this series of chains and yeah. like belts and gears, this strange world that you're finally under the funhouse and seeing the mechanisms of how it works, even under the level uh, of that underclass where they kill people that they pay for sex with you know um even under that you just get these raw gears that look so violent and rusty and then are used of course to kill the monster uh she fucking elect she gets him electrocuted by trying to hit him it's such a it's such a funny kind of uh way that hooper stages this because Mm -hmm. there's no real way that he can get her to overpower the monster true you know so he just has it staged so perfectly so that his momentum swings him back into the electrical socket (laughs) or the electrical board rather the switchboard and then onto a hook and then into the gears for like the uh the dessert after that five course meal of beautiful kills Mm -hmm. you know you get him going through those gears toward the end just uh chef's kiss right there toby hooper R.I.P. What a God. I'm giving this one four and a half bullets. That's good, dude. Yeah. That's good. I like that. Let's keep that up. I'm going to give this one four bullets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I really liked it a lot. And it was, you know, as I kind of hinted to, you know, not exactly what I expected. And it was a much more kind of like uh, technically proficient, you know, work than I, I even expected. And I really need to explore a lot of his other filmography. You know, I've seen Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2. But after this, you know, I have I feel like I've fully realized him as one of the great horror auteurs. What about you, JT? Um, I'm also giving this uh, four bullets. I can be honest with you, fellas, I feel like. I can be honest with everyone listening. I feel like up and like now I feel this is me connecting with Hooper. I want to revisit texas chainsaw because i liked it when i first saw it but it was years ago and i was a novice i couldn't get it it didn't hit me and then i tried poltergeist and life force and i liked those both fine enough Mm -hmm. but again nothing that really like pulled me in like this really did we didn't mention it but immediately after the kill sort of amy like struggling out of the carnival i like that little beat and moment there we see where it's like over top of all the carnival just setting up for the next day and i feel like that's a perfect way to sort of like end this hangout movie where it's like you get these vibes at the beginning and it's just like this dirty um disgusting deeds happen that night underneath the surface that like i don't know i'm sure other perverse things have happened at the carnival none quite as severe but it's like they're setting right back up to do it again the next night the hustle continues. The hustle absolutely continues. As we always say on Excel, <laughs> the hustle continues. You can always email us if, if you contend with this point. You know, I was actually surprised. I saw some cooler reception to this film on Letterboxd. You mm-hmm. know, obviously you have your Hooper heads. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people were giving this three, two and a half kind of. And yeah. I was like, huh, I thought this was a stone cold classic. But if you disagree, you can email us, yell at me, tell me I'm wrong and that I talked too much this episode because I'm looking at the files and I get it. I already apologize. Uh, But uh, extendedclippodcast at gmail.com is where you'll do that. Yeah, if you rated this movie three stars, fuck you. (laughs) Email me. Email me, pussy. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're a fucking worm. <laughs> we get any emails, Eddie? Yeah. <laughs> Anyone telling us to go fuck ourselves from things we said last week? <sighs> Sorry, I got like a school email. It's all good. I hate it. <laughs> to the extended clip podcast email? That's a little weird. Yeah. yeah. No emails this week. <laughs> ah. I wish someone sent us an email. Yeah. Feeling kind of disrespected and neglected. At Extended Clip 69 is where you will find us on Twitter. Uh, we also have a Discord server. You can find a link on there. Discord's popping. It's fun. Hell yeah. People are having fun. People are doing posts. You know, Twitter was down today for like six hours. Where else were people posting? The Extended Clip Discord. Time to hit the chats and perfect your form. Um, add me on Rate Your Music. I'm a burnt Malcolm. It's a username when I, I made when I was 13. Were add you me. a fan of the Bradley Cooper film? <laughs> yeah, that's the inspiration there. Are you on also, RYM, JT? No, I'm not. What were you going to say? Sorry. I was also 13 when Burnt was released <laughs> by uh, Bradley Cooper. So I'm that age. <laughs> Are you on any other site that you want uh, people to yeah, follow I'm you on? on? I, I recently have logged off uh, Twitter and Instagram, but I'm at uh, Tall Boy Thin Legs. Uh, yeah, you can uh, occasionally I'll, 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 I'm just throwing posts into the ether. I don't check. I just, I'm all about posting myself. I think that's a very selfish way to post, <laughs> but go off, I guess. It's like shooting a gun in the dark. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I don't care who it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that just about does it. Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, oh wait, I want, I have one more plug. Okay. Um, YouTube.com <laughs> monkeys getting their dick sucked. All right. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll seed my plug for the week and also say, to, yeah, I would say also look up uh, monkeys getting their dick sucked, but I would just do a general Google video search because I feel like some people may have, uh, you know, the PC warriors are all over YouTube, the SJWs, uh, PC cultures ruined YouTube. So yeah. <laughs> uh, some of the best monkey getting their dick sucked videos may have been deleted. They might be on BitChute. Um, we're going to go on Patreon. We're also transferring our services just because of what Patreon stands for. Too Look, much censorship. All I'm saying is next week on the podcast, uh, I'm bringing a little Italian American special. New York City, where all the best Italian-Americans live. Uh, we're checking out Brian the Palmas, Dressed to Kill, and uh, Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper. And then on the Patreon, we're going to talk about Suspiria. That's right. Suspiria. But not the one by Luca Guadagnino. <laughs> the other one. <laughs> God is watching you. Beg your pardon?